Listener Production. Thanks for tuning in to episode 14 of the Artist Series Part B, featuring sports journo and broadcaster extraordinaire Robert Crash Craddock. Hit it. The speed of what you have to do, Crash, um, frequent listeners to this show know that I have a couple of kids, Crash, and whoever is most connected to the guest and what they're about, uh, if it's okay with you, they have the privilege of asking the guest a question. Lovely. Um, Now, you will get the question from my daughter, who's 12, who loves English and writing and poetry. So she was really connected. She had a million stories for me about the topic she's asked. I said, we just need to ask Crash. So her name is Sky Crash, but she operates under the nickname The Pickle. So that's probably what you hear at the start. Here we go. G'day, Crash. Pickle here. I heard that you're a really good writer. I think that's really cool. I also like writing. I especially enjoy writing poems, and recently I entered a poetry competition. But usually it takes me quite a long time to finish a poem. So what I want to know is how do you finish your story so quickly when there's so much pressure on? Yeah, Sky, that's a lovely question. And I would say this. Firstly, never apologise if it feels like hard work because uh, it, it often is and far better journalists than me really struggle. I was in a state of origin the other night and it was a pressurised game and a couple of journalists said to me, I feel frozen over my laptops huh. and they've been working for 30 years. So that's one thing I'd say. And secondly, Sky, here's one last tip. Try and have two different modes or a couple of different speeds, one where you realise, oh, I've got to get cracking now and and, and just take the barriers down a bit and move and get that keyboard moving. That's what I'd say. And there's other times where I think, right, I've got a day to write this and I'm going to chisel out every word and make it a bit, bit nicer. Have a couple of modes. That's what I would say. Which mode, it's great advice, Crash, which mode do you prefer? Do you prefer I've got to get this match report in or I can now sit down and write a day about Manus Labuschagne's mannerisms at the crease. I love taking time because I think it's a lost art, Howie. Yeah. I, I really do. And I was only looking back the other day um, uh, at my favourite cricket book, On Top, Down Under, to a journalist that would take a day to write a page. But he was Ray Robinson was talking about Keith Miller and he said this. He said, he's got a mind like a pressure gauge needle. When nothing happens... It floats from one end of the scale at will to the other. When the pressure's on, it sets a course and woe betide anything that becomes between Keith and a challenge. (laughs) And I just thought in one paragraph, he's just got the guy. Keith Miller stands in the field, there's nothing happening. He's floating around the area like a pressure gauge needle. Pressure's on. So, And I just thought, I want to write like that, you know, and and you you just – I love good writing and – um, you know, I've never held myself up as a, one of the great sort of cricket writers. Uh, Gideon Hague's a beautiful writer. Peter Lawler, you know, Mike Coward, Peter Roebuck. But I, I do love reading them. And, and, you know, you have your moments where, where things fall into place, but uh, those guys are special. They are. And I, I love reading those gentlemen you mentioned, um, Gideon and, and Peter. But they write, they write with, Gideon writes with beautiful words and, similes and descriptions, but Crash, you write with, I haven't thought about this, I need to use the right word, you write with dirt under your fingernails, you write with 
an association that the bloke at the pub having his beer can get a grasp about the person that Marnus Labuschagne is. And I think that's why I love to read your writing because it, it's gritty and it's real and it's Australian and it's hardworking. Well, th- thanks for It's so nice you, Howie, because you never know when you're hitting the spot. But I tell you what I was influenced by, the great Mike Gibson, who uh, his way of working out what he was going to write about that day was to deliberately, even when he was on a million dollars a year, get a bus to work. He would get a bus or a train and he would watch people reading the morning paper and listen to the chatter at the train station and the bus stations and and people would come up to him, hey, Gibbo, what about that tackle? They're kidding those blokes, aren't they? (laughs) And and he thought that'll do me for the day. And so he... He was very observant, interesting guy, never said a lot. He was all eyes, you know, and um, there was two of him on air he'd come to life. But I never forgot that. And I think when I'm driving to work and I haven't got much to write about, I always think, what are they talking about in the pubs? What are they, you know, just, it's a, it's a, it's a very good yardstick. And what happens when you are blank of mind, when you're blank for a story or blank for a moment when you need to get something in? Like what, what happens then when, when, when the whips are cracking and you've got nothing crash? Do two things. Get on the phone call and make random conversations to guys that are good talkers. Yeah. Peter Lawler's wonderful at that. I always said, if you robbed a bank and you said, I'm never going to tell anyone, and Pete rang up, He's so disarming, you'd say, hey, mate, guess what I did today? Rob a bank. (laughs) (laughs) He's an inspiration. But, you know, get out there, take someone for coffee. Uh, And and the other thing is um, if it's the day before the game and they've got nothing to write, I write out the team list name by name and you go down at Labuschagne, Smith, Green, Green. Actually, I haven't written anything about Cam Green for a while, so something okay. just comes to mind. But there's always a story and, uh, you know, it's uh, some are better than others. What about when you have to get on the phone, and we were speaking on the phone a couple of weeks ago, uh, ago about it, we've both got tremendous um, respect and, and love for Alan Border. What, what happens when you've got to ring AB in his heyday when he's known as Captain, like he is the world's nicest man. So yeah. you could ring him now, yeah. but what? Yeah. how do you go about, like do, do, do you get do you get anxiety ringing blokes like Alan Border knowing what could be coming down the phone line? Oh, uh, uh, um, absolutely. <laughs> because do you know what? He was the one guy we all idolised as a kid and it's still there for me, Howie. And me. He is the humblest guy. And it's interesting it's there for you too because we all know he's the humblest, easy-to-work-with guy you've ever seen. But back in the 80s, he was so big. And he said to me when I started out, he said, I'll give you one advice, a bit of advice. If you need me, if you're going to run something about me that, I'd much rather you rang me and checked it than I read about it in the paper the next day. Okay. So he said, I will blow up at you occasionally, but just do it. <laughs> so I, I followed that for 30, 40 years. But I didn't, and I, I still know his home phone number, 3788. I won't go into the last bit, but I, I can <laughs> trot it out. He's the only cricketer I know. That's how often I rung it. But I was nervous, Howie. My, my hands would be sweaty ringing <laughs> AB. And I, I, I didn't realise how much in demand he was until I went to his place for, to get a photo uh, at the height of his career. There was no mobile phones back then. There was no media managers. So he was very exposed. I reckon his phone rung, I reckon, 12 times in an hour. And it, 
occurred to me then. That's why AB answers the phone, hello, because he's just about at the end of his tether. Yeah. And they were back in the days where you didn't know who was calling. There was no photo <laughs> where you could say, I won't answer this one. So... For that reason alone, my admiration for him is immense. Like, he was unprotected. He was exposed out there as a national captain. I know how many times I rang him. But, yeah, there's still that. I'm still very much in, in, in awe of him and always feel he was underrated. When he missed the team of the century and was 12th man, yeah. I, I just thought, no, I, I, I disagree with that. I'd have had him in there. The heavy-duty heavy cricket he played in 1980s against the toughest bowling the world's ever seen, Average 50 in a crumbling team. Yeah. He didn't make the team of the century. I better stop talking about it. I'm getting fired up. Well, I'll get fired <laughs> up with you too, Crash, because all I remember, we'd get knocked over 170 and AB would be 100 oh, not out. And yeah. it was so, – so the connection – I love the connection you describe with the athlete because there was no barrier between you and, and the athlete. Uh I was shooting a, a, a promo for Fox Cricket yesterday and in the same shoot was Pat Cummins, Josh Hazelwood and Mitchell Stark. And I get to know these guys because you're out on the ground and you're talking to them and you know, you know they're nice chaps. But they were just sitting around, they were talking about the fact that uh, the, the Patty and Josh were about to get married and they were telling me about Nathan Lyon's wedding and, and it was a real conversation not about cricket. It was a real conversation where I could get a, more of a grasp on who these men are. And they're beautiful men. Like Josh is a bit quiet. Paddy's, Paddy and Mitchell Stark is the world's nicest man. Now, I, I sort of know that because of how much cricket I've done. But there's, there's a disconnect in a way. And I was thinking about, I'm going to be speaking to Crash about this tomorrow. You could ring Alan Border. So you knew him and his rhythms and his moods. And that would help you write about him and explain about him. How do you go now that there is, like you still have tremendous relationships with media managers as well, but how do you go about now that there's, there's barrier is not the right word because a great media manager doesn't make it a barrier, but how do you go where there's someone between you and your subject now, which in uh, like in the world of AFL crash, heavens above, it, it's a, it can be a barrier at certain clubs. Cricket, um, yeah, well, cricket's cricket's a little bit different in many ways because you still tour with these guys. But but how do you go with the with someone between you and who you're trying to write about? Yeah, it, it, you accept that it will never be what it was, Howie. It, 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 I mean, it, even a small thing like in the old days, 1990s, the players would go to the bar for one drink at the end of a test day and then go out to dinner, and so would the press. Yes. So the amount of things you would learn in that 40 minutes, just about the shape of cricket, you know, yes. like like just about the nuances of bowlers and everything like that. Like it was incredible. But you, you have to accept the game has changed and it's not going back. So you 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 celebrate what time you do get with these guys. Like hmm. I, 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 and, and, you, you know, um, you make the most of your one-on-one -on -one interviews with them. And if there's anything you want to ask, ask it then. But I think you accept you never really know the real person. Mm. It probably was best exemplified by me with Michael Clark's career. He played for Australia for a long time, yet I didn't really know him. I didn't. He was on the other side of the fence. Um, there was media men in between. Oh, I have no idea what Michael is really, really like. Yet I knew Stephen War, you know. I, I, I could tell you... You know, you know, what, you know what his kids' interests were, and you felt you knew him, and, and 
you, know, you felt the rhythms of his career, his heartbeat, his strengths, his weaknesses as a human, as, an, as a batsman. But you, but also you've got to use your eyes more these days and 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 pick up things. You know, listen closely to to interviews. So it's a it's a, it's an eternal challenge. The so, world's become a bit more insular like that. So how do you establish trust when you don't have that situation where you can have a beer with someone? Well, I, I think the truth always wins. If you're fair in your criticism of a player for both ways, I think they will accept that. I, I really do. Most do, you know, m- most most accept that. Some better than others, but, uh, you know, there's been some guys, Jason Gillespie was always like that too. He would accept the good and the bad. He was pretty hard on himself. He was one of my favourites to deal with. Yeah. Um, you were talking about going to players' rooms for interviews. Um, I remember once I got a request, can I do a big long list of Jason's injuries that he's had? And I didn't know what they were. There was no internet then. So I had to ring him up and ask him. <laughs> players hate that, Howie. Yeah. So I went to his room and it was when the Jaws series was showing. Oh, yeah. And, and, yeah, and he had and just had the Jaws series on television and I pulled out my little Spyrex notepad and we were just kind of doing his injuries. <laughs> and he said, he plucked the great line from Jaws. He said, you're going to need a bigger book. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was one of the great lines. You know what I mean? Like sort of like not Roy Schneider, Jason Gillespie on, on injuries, you know? Yeah. So, Crash, what happens in the rare instance, I hope you don't mind me asking this, where you put something in print that is later not proven to be right? Do, do you ring and apologise? Do you roll on? How does a situation like that happen in, in the written press? Yeah, I think you, you've normally got, if you're categorically wrong, I think you've got to apologise to the person. Yep. And... and Quite often, admit it in print or admit it, you know, make the correction, 100%. Okay, okay. Um, and that was something that was said to me early um, and it's happened over the years plenty of times. Goodness me, I don't know if anyone has made too many more mistakes than I have, but I remember once on a West Indian tour, uh, Bob Simpson, the coach, was in hospital and one of the players said, oh, have you seen the hospital? It's like a mash unit. It's not real flash. And I I said in the in the story... Uh, in a hospital described as a mass unit. Well, Bob's wife read it right. and was very concerned and rang him. And Simo came to me and he said, that was completely and utterly wrong. Have you seen the hospital? And he said, you created panic in my family. That's just... <laughs> and so I went and had a look and I apologised to him and Meg. I was, you know, I, I was categorically wrong. And the lesson, schoolboy era, Howie, go and check your facts. Check mm. that it did look bad and beware of the consequences. Yeah. And what happens when you write an opinion piece on a athlete and they don't like what you've written about them and then they get on the phone or you see them at the ground the next day and they say, hey, crash, like, h- how do you handle a situation like that? Because that must have happened countless times. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's all different sort of temperatures. Um, I, sometimes you just get a player wrong. I'll, I'll tell you a, a player I underestimated as a batsman, Darren Lehman. Okay. Um, I just looked at his style and didn't think he was going to be a test player and I used to write it and he'd come up to me and he was really nice and he'd come up and said, I saw what you wrote. He said, I'll prove you wrong. <laughs> and do you know what he did? He averaged 45. Yep. And, and people said, oh, fast bowlers would sort him out. Well, some sort of really tested him, but he had a way. Some guys have just got a way. And I just got him wrong, Howie. I just underestimated him for a lot mm-hmm. of his career. 
And, and, and I, I just felt that it's just an example to me not to just go with popular opinion, you know, like just there, there are different ways to triumph in life and not all of them come from the textbook. And, and Lehman was one of those guys. But he, he challenged me on a couple of things. Justin Langer um, was the longest. <laughs> when he first came to Queensland, he scored a century in a shield game and I said his footwork wasn't that good. <laughs> and mm. when I was on the set of Cricket 360 30 years later, <laughs> I got this text and he said, oh, you're not still bagging I me, mean, not since 1991, you know what I mean? So <laughs> JL could remember a grudge, I've got to say it. Well, one of the biggest stories in your time, and I don't know if you were there, um, but I'm sure you would have written about it, was the Hansi yeah. Cronier uh, match-fixing story, probably alongside what happened again in South Africa with the, with the sandpaper situation is, is probably two of the biggest stories we've seen in cricket. Were you involved in the Hansi story? It was an extraordinary coincidence. Friday afternoon, a story came down the wires that Hansi Crony had been taped by Indian bookmakers, by Indian police, conversing and conducting negotiations with bookmakers. And the next day we were leaving for a week-long tour of South Africa. Supposed to be a week, I stayed two months. But when we landed, Howie, it was a country in denial. Was it? Ali Buck. Ali Barker met us at the airport and said, hey, have you seen those Indian reports? They are laughable, you know. And, and I had editors ring me saying, can you please clear this up? This story is either two paragraphs, completely false, or it's the front page lead of our paper. Which one is it? And I said, I, I, I don't know. I, I do not know. So we scrambled. But what happened, Howie, to cut a long story short, Bronwyn Wilkinson, the media girl over there, she greeted us and she said, I totally believe what Hansi said is the truth. But if I find he's lying, I will hand him over to you in a heartbeat because I will be Ooh. disgusted. So we gave a press conference, which was really tricky. John Buchanan was there and saw this denials he made. And I even rang John in his room and I said, is this guy telling the truth? And John said, I can't work out whether he's either totally so innocent he thinks it's laughable or so guilty, he's just got nowhere to go. He said, but I think he could be guilty, but I don't know. But it all changed when after that press conference, he walked out into a car park to drive home with Bronwyn with him. And she said, I reckon we might get Alan Donald up to talk about it tomorrow to defend you. And Hunsey, just in an unguarded moment, said he'd be perfect because he knew nothing about it. Oh. And Bronwyn just thought, hang on a minute, that's just, you know, that's... And he looked at Bronwyn Stater in the eyes if, say, I've just given the game away. So Bronwyn came into us and said, there's trouble here. He, he's up to something. So it all changed from there. So I actually went to his house and door knocked him, you know, and... and to Hans's to and, house? Yeah, in George. We turned up there and um, I knocked on his door. He came to the door and he said, I don't want to do an interview. But he posed for a photograph. You wouldn't believe it, but... Oh, he was, it was so confusing, Howie, that story. My mates still take the mickey out of me because a month before he was exposed as a match fixer, I read a feature on him saying he's cricket's straightest man, so straight <laughs> that his idea of a wild night out is going to bed without his pyjama top on. That's what I wrote about him. <laughs> and next he was banned for life. You can't get them all right, Crash. Do you think I'm a good judge of character, Howie? <laughs> <laughs> Back to Crash in a sec in Series 1 of the Artist Series, Episode 8. 
we featured another writer, a travel writer, Tony Wheeler, along with his wife Maureen, founded Lonely Planet Travel Guides, a publishing phenomenon, an episode this one for all those that like the road less travelled and those that want to start a business from nothing and make it big. Here we are in Sydney. How much money have we got left? And I put <laughs> put my hand in my pocket and I, we had 27 cents. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I had a camera. I went up to the cross. We walked up to the cross and um, <laughs> we got, um, before we got to the cross, we, we, we went to a loan shop and got $25 for my camera. Um, but we, the, the Sydney Morning Herald in those days was five cents. And um, a, f- a phone call was also five cents. <laughs> Here's inflation for you. <laughs> and um, we got the Sydney Morning Herald and we found a room for $16 a week. And we made a five cent phone call and said, we'll come along and put a 16 first week's rent down. <laughs> and then got 25 bucks for my camera. So we still had $9. <laughs> but no camera. No camera. I got it back a week later <laughs> because we, within a week, we both had jobs and, um, but everybody you met, they said, oh, where did you go? How did you do that? Oh, what did that cost? Oh, you know, I didn't know you could cross India, cross Afghanistan, you know, and we started writing notes for people. And after a while, we thought, we could make a book out of this. Um, and we did. And that was the first Lonely Planet guidebook. And what was it called? It was called Across Asia on the Cheap. That is Tony Wheeler of Lonely Planet fame on episode eight of the Artist Series. Alrighty, let's get back to Crash. You've also moved into television and, and back page with you and Tony and, and, and Kerry is always always worth watching and Kath Lachlan was on there the other day and you have a rotating group through. I, I always enjoy that show. But for me, um, the Cricket Legends series, because like you, I'm a massive fan of cricket, to sit down which is what we're doing now, but you're doing it on film with cricketers from all around the globe. What does that show mean to you and how did you approach it? Well, welcome, Warney. Yeah, thanks for having me, Crash. Well, welcome to Cricket Legends, Kirtley. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, welcome, Mark. Crash, good to be here, mate. Good to talk to you. Uh, it was just the greatest thrill. And I'm still indebted to Matt Weiss and the guys, you know, who, who encouraged it. But And I was... When we started, Howie, I was so nervous that... I, after we'd done five or six, I ran into Matty Johns in the corridor and he said, what are you here for? I said, oh, I'm doing um, Cricket Legends. And he said, I haven't heard of that. And I said, no, it, uh, they're, they're keeping it really quiet, mate. He goes, oh, are they? And, and but I was just so bashful about it. And for our first episode was Jeff Thompson. And I still remember sitting down and looking up into the lights and having, oh, not imposter syndrome, but I thought, yep. like, I get, like, I so rated Mike Sheehan uh, for, for, for his... AFL series. Open mic. Open mic. And I just, and I rang him up and he was wonderful with advice. And I thought, oh, I was so nervous. But you know what? And then Tomo cracked a few gags and we're away. And at the end of the show, I always rate getting advice from the cameraman. Yes. uh, Because I'd felt as green as Tully Grass doing it. And the cameraman said, look, mate, I'll, I'll say this. Tomo had opinions funny stories, a few gags, and he's Tomo. Just let that template continue. Yeah. If you can keep doing that, you don't have to do anything else. That's fine, you know. So away we went, and I've got to say, 
They were 44. There's not one that I didn't enjoy, you know. They were all different. And, Howie, this is something you do well. Each time you've got to be a little bit different as an interviewer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you just you, you just what might work for some doesn't work for others. And I've noticed you did that very well. Jeff Sir Garfield Sabres on Ice Cricket Legend. <laughs> Who's your favourite modern day cricketer? Oh, I got a few of them. I got a few of them. I, I, I like um for, I like Smitty from here. I, when he first started playing, I thought he looked magnificent. De Villiers, Amla, and now this boy Cooley. I think he's a lot, a lot of class. Like that, that, that's, to me, if you said to me, all right, name a cricketer that's retired you could do a podcast with, I'd be going Viv Richards, Sir Viv Richards or Sir Garfield Sobers, I reckon. Yeah, and, and it's funny you mentioned him because he was the toughest of the lot. Um, Sir Garfield, was he? Yeah, I did him up in this very room where I'm sitting now at the Career Mail and I was so nervous about it because he has got a reputation as being a little bit cantankerous. Right. And um, Tony Cozier once said to me from the West Indies, many years ago, if you're interviewing Sir Garfield, always have a bottle of Black Label Scotch there right. beforehand. Right. So I thought, right, that's my big play. So I brought the bottle of Scotch in <laughs> and poured two nips of it, two little glasses, one for me, one for him, even though I don't drink Scotch. And I thought this was... So we walked in. I said, oh, Sir Garfield, uh, would you uh, maybe like a Scotch before we start? And, I, and he said, what's the time? I said, oh, it's 11.20. He said... Do you think I'm an alcoholic? (laughs) (laughs) So he sat down there and, um, oh, you know, we had some awkward moments in the interview. I said to him, oh, it must have been great at your, uh, when you were knighted and Tom Jones, the singer, was there with Engelbert Humperdinck. And he goes, that's the dumbest question I've ever been asked. Where'd you get that? Where'd you get that from? And I said, oh, it was on page 60 of your autobiography. And so we we sort of fell out. but, But when he left... Um, he walked out of this room we're in now and I was, you know, a little bit... The interview went okay, but I was so shaken. I don't normally drink scotch, but I got these two glasses and both went down the hatch. (laughs) 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 So... Yeah. The, the great Dennis Cometti, who was the first episode of this show I ever recorded. Gilly was the first one I put out. I was leaning on friends, obviously, but Dennis is the first one I did. And and he was telling me, Crash, from a television perspective, and I get it, he's, I get where he's coming from, that the Olympics can be a great career killer as a TV presenter because all of a sudden you're stepping into commentating or the rowing or coming back from the high jump and making it sound like you know everything about the Russian 21-year-old um, since she was six years of age. He was of the opinion, be very wary of the Olympics. What's covering the Olympics like as a, as a print journalist? Do, you, do, they, do they say, right, Crash, we want you to cover the archery or are you at the point now where they say, Crash, go to Rio and just bring us some gold. How does it work? Uh, it's a daily thing. You, you look at the big events and you swap them around. It's two two words I'd say, Howie, exhausting yeah. and exhilarating. Uh-huh. Uh, you go to Olympic Games and they had this little room uh, at Rio they did where journalists could get shoulder massages uh, <laughs> from locals in the press centre and, and you'd go there and quite often there'd be ten people asleep on the floor. And on day one, uh, day, well, it's about day three, and it's just not an issue because everyone's tired, but it's just so exhilarating. There's no buzz like it. There is no buzz like it. Like Brisbane for the Olympics, I think it'll be the most wonderful thing that's ever happened to this city. It's They've pinpointed the venues It will all the way through right the heart of the city to the outer suburbs. It's just going to buzz. It'll be, it's, it's wonderful. But 
But the big Olympic events, you have to be aware that they live forever. A mate of mine was at the Lay Down Sally rowing incident at the Athens Olympics. Right. And he switched straight on. He thought, this is big. This is a 20-year event. This yes. is, you know, this is this is big right here. You, you can be fluffing away and there's nothing happening or you do a lovely little bronze medal story and suddenly right in front of you is Sally Pearson going, pop, crack. Suddenly there's a shock medal winner in the rowing. You've got to know all about them. So it's uh, it's great. Rio was badged. Every Olympics gets badged with something. Like Athens wasn't ready. China was uh, how it was going to be dealt with 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 communism. Every Olympics has a theme as to what potential disaster could befall. Rio was security and crime. And, you know, so there'll be a 1,000 articles in the lead-up to uh, uh, is it going to be safe for our athletes and then safe for our journos. Did you go okay in Rio? Did you have any concerns or not? Well, it was funny. I ended up uh, in the middle of this uh, incredible story when photographer Brett Costello had his $40,000 worth of camera uh, equipment stolen and we turned up. uh, It was front page news in Rio. We turned up to the archery. Yeah. Me, the reporter, him, the photographer, and he turned white and he said, mate, the guy who stole my camera gear, who I saw on the closed circuit TV, is standing behind you. Ooh. And I said, no, you're kidding. And I said, settle, Brett, settle. You know, it's one of these, could be one of these things where you just think everyone's the crook. So how do you know it's him? And he said, he's got my pass around his neck. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit of a giveaway. <laughs> so, Howie, we had this comical hour where I said, I'll follow the crooks, you get the police. So I followed these two guys around the archery uh, set up and my phone was running out of battery so I had to plug it into the side of my computer and hold the computer up. And uh, eventually uh, we came together, Brett and I, and I, I, I I was taping it, I taped it, the actual arrest, and I was actually shouting out to the police, arrest this man, arrest this man. (laughs) And um, they play it sometimes as a meme on the back page. Like if there's any security issues involving something, they'll play that. They used to play that, arrest this man. <laughs> but but oh. it was it was dramatic and we went to the police station and um, uh, the two guys were handcuffed to a pole in front of us. And so I was sitting there typing the story and one of the guys, like two metres away from the guy, was handcuffed to a pole looking at me. It was quite intimidating. I don't think it was my best work, Howie. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't know that you were a crime fighter as well. I would have introduced you <laughs> as that at the start, Crash. You've covered so much cricket uh, as we wind up and I've loved everything about this conversation and the art of what you do and getting people on side so they tell you their story. I'll put you on the spot. This won't be easy for you. If you had, so you've been covering cricket for 40 years, if you had one batsman to watch, not necessarily to go out there and score runs for you, but one batsman to watch and to write about in all the cricket you've seen, who are you picking? Well, uh, the, the one thing I would say is I was eternally fascinated by the story of Brian Lara mm. because it never went the way that history wanted it to, Howie, mm. you know. I used to love watching Matthew Hayden stand at Gully and without even knowing it, he would impersonate Brian Lara's defensive shot because he loved him so much <laughs> and even Brian Lara's leave... You know, yeah, and 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 he's intrigued me so much as a human being, um, because 
he turned up to Andrew Simons' funeral having travelled from India. Yes. So I, I thought, I'm going to follow you around and find out what this. I said, tell me about this. And he said, well, you know what? I had some great friendships with the Australians that were cemented, but the night Shane Warne died and they had the memorial service in <sighs> Melbourne, I went out with Simons to Crown Casino till 3am and I could feel that we were going to be friends for the rest of our lives. Hmm. He said, it's this weird feeling. And I just liked him. And he said, you had to play on Simons's team to know who he was. Everyone else found him abrasive. I found him abrasive. But we were getting there, you know. So he was the interesting one. And, of course, and, uh, and of course, I would have loved to have had a little bit. I only had one interview with Sir Donald Bradman, which lasted two minutes. Tell me about it. Tell me about well, it. Well, when Mark Taylor scored 334 not out, he declared on the same score as Don Bradman. So I thought I'll ring Don Bradman. I got his number off Bill Brown, the cricketer up here who I knew well, and Bill said, just be wary because you've got to be on your guard and, and with Don. You don't kick it around with him. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you'll find out when you ring him. He said, you'll. And so I rang him and um, I said, uh, oh, hi, Sir Donald. Uh, Robert Craddock here. Sorry for disturbing you. And he went, uh, hang on. No, no, you're not sorry. If you were sorry, you wouldn't have rung in the first place. I said, oh. <laughs> and I, I just sort of, you know, uh, he got and I saw what Bill meant. And then I said, can I just have one quick question, if that's okay, about Mark Taylor? Yeah, sure. I said, and I asked a question and I said, yeah, you sound pretty impressed. He said, that's question number two. <laughs> <laughs> so he just, I, I got the point. It was sort of funny how he only had two minutes with Bradman, but I, I got the, you know, the the the, the narrative of that, you know, he, he was, he didn't kick it around with Don, you know, he just, uh, he was pretty sharp-edged, yeah. That's something though, isn't it? That's something to have a conversation with Sir Donald Bradman. That that that's that must be a moment where you get off the phone and think, "Wow, this this job I have is not really a job." Oh yeah, it was. Oh, I loved it, and um, you know there were so many Bradman stories over the years, including the one where a mate of mine, an Indian journalist, asked me for his address in Adelaide, and he said, "I'm going to interview Don," and I said, "Oh mate, you know, as it spoke for thirty years." Then the next day. Uh, over the uh, wires come this story about his big interview Don's given in India about how uh, Kapil Dev's the best Oranus and so-and-so. And uh, the Indian journalist said to me, he said, oh, yeah, I uh, turned up to his place and I picked up the Adelaide advertiser from outside his front gate. And when Don came out, I said, oh, you're obviously looking for this. And we started chatting and he said, for half an hour. And I said, gee, he's not normally like that with journos. He said, oh, I never told him I was a journo. <laughs> 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 Crash, I, I spent um, four years, four years of persistence to get um, one of my sporting heroes, Kelly Slater, on this podcast, oh. and he was he was warm and he was generous and he was fantastic. He was everything that I could hope he would be, and, and I treasure that two hours chatting with him. If there's an interview out there in world sport that you'd love to write the old-fashioned three-page spread on X, who is that person? Yeah, it, 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 it's a really good one. I mean, I, I've often felt that the true Tiger Woods story, who he yeah. really is as a person, has never been told, you know. We, he just, he's a more mellow human man than he was, and, and I, I, but I don't think we've ever, ever quite got there to, to no. that point yet. 
who, who is the real guy? Do you, do, do you, you know, we, we just haven't got the, I, I, that, that's the one I would love to do. I, and, and it may be coming. You know, it, it may be out there. I, I find him eternally fascinating. You know, I just think that somewhere in there is one of the most brilliant minds sports ever seen. And uh, I don't know if we'll ever see it publicly. So how would you go about that? Say you're going for a Hail Mary and your editor says to you, Crash, be nice to get a good piece with Tiger Woods. And you say, well, it might take two years. And he says, that's all right. Take your time. Like, how would you go about doing that? I think you'd contact his management and, and you just say, sometimes the neutral voice, the one who's got no scar tissue that just comes in fresh can do it. Yep. You'd probably try and, you know, Sid, look, this is something I've done previously. Uh, I'm a golf lover. I think, you, you know, the story deserves to be told. The real you, you know, it's time. You know, and you, lo- you love them. It does happen randomly, occasionally, but, uh, you know, it, it's probably a dream, but uh, it, it would be the ultimate sports story for me. I just think that's, that's the one that really sticks out, you know. And what feeling does it give you when you get the equivalent of the yes from Tiger Woods over the years from various athletes when they say, yeah, Crash, I'll have a chat with you? What What is that feeling like when you know you're going to get the opportunity to chat to someone that that, that is going to be engrossing. It's all at once. It's intimidating. It's exciting. And you know what? Before she headed off to the Australian Open, I sat down with Ash Barty. Yep. And the best thing that happened was uh, when the interview stopped, she was filming a commercial and she had to. we both sat in the room for half an hour and it was then that I felt that I got to know the real person mm-hmm. and – I just felt that that disarming nature she's got and how, you know, the, 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 just that, that humble sort of working class kid that she is really came through. And I know you stood, that was the best half an hour I reckon I've had in years. Just, huh. and, and she was so at peace with herself. I thought that this, this girl's got to a point in her life where I don't think success or failure is match related. And that's the point that so many sportsmen never reach, Howie. They're defined by what they do on the court that day or mm. thing. Uh, Adam Gilchrist has spoken about it, the pressures of that, you know, how you walk into it, you know, a buffet after failing and you see you feel like a bad person the way people are looking at you. You know, it's just, you know, it's uh, she got past that, which was, which was great. Crash, for all the youngsters out there that want to achieve success, we always finish this way in their chosen field, whether it's to be a writer or a cricketer or a snooker player or a physician or a plumber, or an electrician, you've achieved, well, you've got the rare double. You've been very, very successful in a field that I reckon you love as much as life itself. What advice would you give to the youngsters out there that are wanting to achieve success along the lines that you have had? Three things, be humble, be relentless, and keep your ears open. Hmm. You know, I, I just... I'm so impressed by kids that come into the industry and, and, and they're, they're, they're just watchful and observant and they're prepared to start at the bottom. Be prepared to put the bricks and mortar in. You know, there's so many people come into an industry and, and expect to surf their way to somewhere really quickly, but you learn so much at the bottom of the pyramid. You know, like the mistakes I made at provincial papers, you know, oh, gosh, I look back at them now, Howie, and, and, <laughs> but I'm glad I made them. You know, you learn right at the bottom, you know, and there's no task should be beneath you. You know, we look talk about the All Blacks, you know, cleaning the dressing room, mm. you know, and, and Lee Matthews, the famous Brisbane line coach, he always used to put uh, 
take bags off the carousel, put bags in the trucks. He said, if people seen you do that, you know, that they were, you know, no task was beneath him. No, nah, no. Nah. That's, that's footy field, mate. We do, we do the one percenters. So I, I love guys like that. I really do. Crash, I've loved everything about this. I was excited about doing it. Um, I had a thought in my head that we could explore the art of what you do as well as get some stories and you're as good a storyteller as I've ever had on this show. This could have been 10 parts with Crash Craddock and we could still be telling and listening to cricket stories. I appreciate your time. I can't wait to read what you've got coming over the summer and on Boxing Day because I think it's going to be an enormous day in Australian sport and you will summarise it for the man in the pub better than anyone. Thanks so much for joining me on the Artist Series. Howie, it's been a pleasure and I've loved your contribution to cricket. You've brought out some uh, great flavours and some great people over the past few years, mate, and it's my absolute pleasure to be a part of it. Good on you, Crash. Look after yourself. Thank you so much. Thanks, mate. Thank you. What a star Crash is. What a star, what a storyteller and just a ripping, ripping fellow. Thanks to Crash for being such a wonderful, wonderful guest and for saying yes immediately when I asked him to come on. Hope you're all loving the Artist Series as much as I am bringing it to you. Until next week with Vance Joy. Vance Joy. Next Tuesday. Don't miss it. Peace and love.